incident on Friday. <clears throat> and I quote from his article, and in his article he quotes from two others. The hatred of Christians at Columbine and Fort Worth as a motive driving killing is usually ignored in the media. And now he quotes, The media were very quick in August to draw the conclusion that the shooter at the Jewish Community Center in Los Angeles was motivated by anti-Semitism, notes Brent Baker, Vice President of Research and Publications for the Media Research Council. But in Fort Worth, reporters and their editors are, quote, being much more hesitant to assign a motive. <clears throat> he goes on to say, Harold O.J. Brown of the Howard Center for the Family, Religion, and Society finds, quote, a similarity between the Roman, the way, excuse me, I, I better get this quote right, the similarity between the way the Roman authorities charged Christians of that era with odium humani generis, hatred of the human race, and the way the political and media establishment charged the Christians today with creating a climate of hate. His final comment is scary stuff. <clears throat> the question that I have been asked about this incident <clears throat> in Texas is the question that raises its head whenever there is a heinous crime <clears throat> or tragedy that occurs in our culture or around the world. How can a loving God allow such things to happen? It's phrased in many different ways. How can God, if he is loving, allow bad things to happen to good people? It's all part of the same question. As West Pruden harkens back to the days of the Roman Empire <clears throat> to compare public reaction to Christians <clears throat> in that day <clears throat> with public media and government reaction to Christians today, even in such tragedies such as occurred in Fort Worth, we note the same thread that is sown through the ages, the hostility that Christians experience throughout the world. And so we turn to the pages of Scripture to find that common thread in its original skein, the beginning of that thread, the explanation for how a loving God would allow such things to happen, and the origin of the Roman government's opportunity to show hostility toward the faith of Christianity. <clears throat> None who see the pictures that are presented to us in this account in Scripture, in this passage, have any surprise at shock or shock at hostility directed at those who are followers of Christ. For in this passage, in John chapter 19, in the parallel passages in the other Gospels, we see the hostility and hatred that is showered upon Christ himself. The stage has been set in the previous chapter, John chapter 18. <clears throat> Christ was arrested by a gang of soldiers bearing swords and clubs, even though he had gone among them bearing no weapons on a daily basis and appeared in the temple courts. He had been taken to the high priest's home. He had been taken to Annas, <clears throat> Caiaphas's father-in-law, and then to Caiaphas's home. He'd appeared before the religious leaders, and finally, as they had determined, they had, of course, determined it long before this point, to have him executed, he was taken to the Roman governor Pilate for the sentence of death to be pronounced upon him. The problem was, they had to have the Roman governor sentence Christ to death, as it was against the law for them to sentence and execute him. So they had to convince Pilate that he was guilty of a crime deserving death. 
Of course, he wasn't guilty of a crime deserving death. And therein lay the difficulty, their challenge. How to convince the Roman governor that this innocent man deserved to be executed? They needed and wanted to achieve this before the evening came so that they would be able to go to the religious observance of the Friday preparations for the Sabbath, this week in which the Passover had already occurred. And so they needed to act quickly. They had already shown their penchant, their ability, their power to act quickly by the way they had marched Jesus through what we might call today the kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin. And so in order to placate them, Pilate said, send him out and flog him. This was not just any old beating. This was a beating akin to the British custom of flogging with the cat of nine tails, in which the whip was broken into a number of different ends, which were tied sharp stones and bones that literally ripped the flesh from the bone. Now, I realize that that it is abhorrent, that it is terrible even, particularly in our culture today, which so abhors any sort of physical pain or punishment. It is abhorrent and terrible even to speak of and think about this whipping. But the horrors of this world, horrors which are brought on by man's sinfulness and the power of Satan over this world, are horrors which we must face squarely. Particularly this horror of the treatment of Christ. Because we know for certain because it is told to us plainly in Scripture that this occurred so that Christ could pay the penalty due for your sins and my sins, for the sins of all who will trust in him. And by suffering as he did, that through trusting in him, we could be spared the terrible wrath of God against all who reject Christ. So Christ was the victim of the soldier's mockery and enjoyment. That is what we see so clearly in this passage. You and I have all known people who have taken great delight in hurting others. We've seen this at a distance. We've seen it in the Columbine murders. We've seen it in the shootings out in California. We've seen it in many sundry incidents, many of which are on the national news, some of which are on the local news. We have seen it in the reports, massive demonstrations of this in Kosovo, Sudan, from many other places around the world. We have also oftentimes seen it in our schools when we have been students in school. As, for instance, in those situations and climates, it is often the case that a small-time bully, we observe, takes pleasure in hurting those who are within his power. But on a scale such as this, as we observe in this passage the soldiers beating and humiliating and seeking to degrade Christ, few of us have ever witnessed such brutality with enjoyment in the process. And we can be so very thankful that we have not witnessed it if we haven't. But here with Christ brutally whipped and tormented by these soldiers, who thought they would have their fun by mocking his claim to royalty, by putting a purple robe on him and a crown made with sharp, tearing thorns upon his head, we come face to face with official brutality. 
Squirm as we might, we cannot turn aside from this account or the facts of this account or the dreadful realization that is impressed upon us again and again, this man is innocent. This man is innocent. Nevertheless, his innocence did not spare him from these persecutions. And to add to the mockery, this brutality was part of Pilate's plan. Step back here a minute. How many times have you and I complained of injustice in our lives? And what have we suffered? (laughs) So the example of Christ in this passage is even more astonishing. Pilate said to him, Are you not going to give me an answer? Do you not realize I hold in my hand a balance between life and death? And yet we complain of injustice. The brutality that the soldiers acted out upon Christ was part of Pilate's plan. For what? For what? Was it part of his plan for Jesus so that when Jesus was ultimately crucified, Christ would die more quickly? And frequently that was the result of such brutality. And that was the hope in the process. But remember, from Pilate's own efforts and from the fears that are expressed to us two or three times in this passage, his fear to be a part of this end result, this end game in which Christ was condemned to be executed. At this point in the process, he had not accepted that execution on the cross was going to be the outcome of this mock trial. As far as Pilate was concerned, several different efforts is stated to us even explicitly there. He did not want to condemn Christ to crucifixion, to execution. What was the plan then for this brutality? This brutality heaped upon Christ was Pilate's plan to make Christ pitiful to the bloodlust of the crowd so that they would relent in seeing how broken Jesus was, seeing how effective this brutality was upon him, that they would stop short of demanding his crucifixion. (coughs) But in verse 6, we read, As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Is this fair? (coughs) Is it acceptable? (coughs) Is it tolerable? Particularly based upon Pilate's continued assessment as the judge in the case of the situation. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Pilate, this man was innocent. <clears throat> Given the current, current furor over the deaths of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas in 1993, we know that there is an innate, inborn sense of justice in people. They hate to see injustice. And it's not just a selfish thing. But we hate as well to see injustice that is heaped upon those around us. We wonder as we view Pilate from across the ages, where did he go wrong? Why didn't he simply say, you're not going to get it from me? You're looking for a prescription? Execute this man, and I'm not giving it to you. Why didn't he simply say, I've declared him innocent, innocent he is, I will not execute him. As his fear throughout the process increased, it says he feared even more throughout the different stages of this trial. 
We know that his conscience was screaming to him that this man was innocent and that he would be terribly guilty if he sent him to die. But the crowd was screaming louder. And so we see that the process by which Christ died was not a process of unbiased, fair, measured judgment, but a process instead of that common effect in the world throughout the ages of majority and indeed in this case of mob rule. <clears throat> Whoever screamed the loudest and carried the most influence got their wish. Justice was irrelevant. <clears throat> and so Christ was condemned to die because the religious leaders hated him. And they, with their associates and friends, intimidated Pilate and manipulated Pilate <clears throat> into ordering Christ's crucifixion. Now we come to the obvious question. How could God let this happen to his own son? As we believe that there is one God in three persons. This was even God himself in the person of Christ, allowing it happen to himself. How could a loving God have any part in this plan? <clears throat> or did he get caught off guard? <clears throat> I was reading just recently of a pastor of a large church in Minnesota who suggested that God does not know everything that is going to happen. That he cannot know what man will do, particularly in his sinfulness, until he sees what man does. <clears throat> this is certainly contrary to everything the Bible teaches about God's omniscience and omnipotence and sovereignty. Consider with me how the disciples viewed Christ's crucifixion after the fact after he had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. According to Acts chapter 4, verse 24, <clears throat> they raised their, and this is in the context of Peter and John healing the lame man outside the temple, <clears throat> and the religious leaders calling them in to question them. What are you doing? Who gave you the authority to do this? <clears throat> And they threatened them, and then they sent them away because the people were rejoicing at the lame man's health and wellness. And so the, Peter and John went and prayed with the disciples and the apostles and the other disciples. And they raised their voice to God with one accord and said in their prayer, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, and they quote here, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, <clears throat> with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. They did not even consider that God was taken by surprise by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Instead, they stated bluntly in their prayers that this wickedness, plotted and carried out by Herod, Pilate, the Gentile Roman soldiers, and the Jews who shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Although these men were guilty of this vile and wicked act, this was a part of the plan of God all according to his purpose. <clears throat> How could a loving God allow such wickedness to be poured out upon Jesus, who was and is God himself? Not by ignorance of what these wicked people would do, 
It did not catch him by surprise. Instead, it was according to plan. He knew their wickedness. This is what they would do. And he submitted to it willingly. Do you doubt that Christ suffered this willingly? Do you think for a moment that he did not know what the end result would be before it happened? And consider the words of Scripture found in Philippians 2, verse 5 and following. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself, it tells us in this passage. He was not an unsuspecting victim. He entered into this situation knowing everything because it was his plan. He knew what would happen. He planned what would happen. He submitted to the wicked injustice of these evil men doing the will of their master. He submitted even to the terrible brutality of these Roman soldiers who sought to degrade him while they brutalized him prior to the crucifixion. But why? Was there no alternative? Did he not have any other options? Certainly he did. As the Philippians passage shows, it says that he humbled himself and became a man, not considering his glory something to be grasped. He could simply have refused to humble himself. And said, as you and I say time and again, I'm not going to do that. I won't humble myself to that point. Or he could have called his servants, the angels, to deliver him. As he spoke to Pilate in chapter 18 of John, saying, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Or as we see clearly in our passage, he could have forbidden Pilate this power over him. Verse 11, Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Instead, he submitted. Because it was his plan to carry out the sacrifice, cruel and inhuman as it was, in order to pay the penalty of the sins of mankind so that God could and would forgive those whom he chooses to forgive. Those who see that Christ offered his life because he loved them and wants to save them from the curse of eternal death. With this information, our eyes are opened to see the much broader picture in this account. It does not end as a miserable, terrible, brutal display of injustice of the cruelest store. Instead, it takes our breath away Not simply because of the terrible nature of the sordid trial in which the mob ruled and the governor was coerced, had his arm twisted into the most wicked decision of his life. In this trial, we see the plan of God involving terrible injustice poured out upon himself. The plan of God involving terrible justice poured out upon himself. This terrible violence which brought no pleasure whatsoever to him but instead was to include God the Father turning his back on his Son, because the Son, Jesus Christ, was bearing the sins of mankind in his, in his death as a sacrifice 
for the forgiveness of sins. And yet we see fit to charge this God of grace, this God who suffered such violence and separation. Oftentimes we see fit to charge him with injustice or lack of compassion because we see people in the world around us suffer. The disciples who prayed the prayer I read from Acts understood the debt that they owed to Christ and the relationship his suffering and death had to their lives. Because in pointing to his suffering being all a part of his plan, something that he had planned from before the creation of the world for their salvation, they asked his strength and his grace so that they themselves could suffer injustice and violence as he had and submit to it. That is the condition, the situation they had just come out of. Being threatened by the Sanhedrin, and they were under no illusions. They did not think, they threatened us, but they're never going to do anything. It was too close to the crucifixion of Christ for them to be under such delusions. And yet they came and they prayed this prayer, and they said in the midst of this prayer, they didn't say, Lord, help us to keep our mouths shut and not to speak in your name, because that's what they've warned us against doing. No, they said, help us to be bold, to proclaim your name and your person more faithfully. And so what is this? But in essence, an asking for martyrdom. They gave thanks that they too could walk in the path of injustice and suffering in which he had walked for their sakes. In their final response to Pilate's futile attempts to release Christ, the religious leaders, chief priests, had this exchange with Pilate. He said to them, as I read from verse 15, Shall I crucify your king? And they said, We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered, Now I ask you, who was the chief priest king? Was it Caesar or was it God? The right answer to that question is, of course, that their king was God, even if they did not recognize Christ. And so from their mouths, they declared the truth regarding their lives. Now in conclusion, as you and I consider this scene and this situation... The people involved in it, we think to ourselves, what vile, what wicked men. We think to ourselves, Pilate, and we may superimpose over the features of Pilate, Hitler. And yet do we find in history that Pilate was a terrible, wicked ruler among the Jewish people? No. He was a very competent ruler. Very fair in so many circumstances. And yet he is the one who was guilty of this most terrible of acts. Do we find in the histories of Judaism at this point in time, Josephus and others, that these chief priests were guilty of terrible crimes? They're not noteworthy. And yet they killed Christ. And so maybe perhaps this changes our view and our impression of wickedness. We think of wickedness in capital letters. We think of the man who killed the people in Fort Worth, regardless of whatever insanities may have been involved. We think on the broadest 
scale of Hitler and those who participated with him in the extermination of millions of people. And yet, what we must do in looking at this passage is realize that we were represented there on that day. Christ died because of our corporate wickedness and our individual wickedness and sinfulness. He did not take an abhorrent monster to do this to Christ, to sentence him to execution. It took my sins and your sins to make this a necessity which he carried out by plan. And whereas we are the ones who protest against injustice, we are the very ones who forced this injustice into being. And so the thing that I want each one of us to realize from this passage is not to come away from it with any sense of ease or, or comfort, but instead with a great disquiet. This is a place where we cannot say, <clears throat> they, we must say, we brought this to pass. And that we must go before Christ and seek his forgiveness for being the ones who made it necessary for him to die. To thank him that he was willing to suffer injustice which we have never suffered on this scale. And never will suffer because we will never be innocent. Thank him for the sacrifice so that we might have salvation. That is the end result of this injustice. And let us never forget it, and let us never charge God with injustice when people suffer because of the example that is before us in John chapter 19. Let us pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would impress the message of this passage, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon our hearts as individuals, that we would repent of our sins, which made it necessary for Christ to go through this flogging and this crucifixion. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our rebellion against you. Forgive us for <clears throat> ignoring you. Forgive us for not loving and being devoted to you. Forgive us for our sense of injustice, which causes us to see injustices in the smallest things and causes us to neglect the part that we have played in this greatest injustice of eternity. And we pray that you would forgive us and bring us to salvation and cause us to grow in our understanding of how our sins separate us from you and cause there to be barriers in our relationship with you. We pray that we would love you with all of our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.